0: So, taking on from that, we're entering into Holy Week, and uh, I have a a kind of a set message that I like to do on Palm Sunday, because it's so important, and comes right off exactly what we were just talking about, but I want to modify it a little bit um, this year. I've been doing so much counseling lately, just a lot of counseling, and so it's kind of been pervasive. I've also was studying for the chaplaincy, and so a lot more information was downloaded and and ways of looking at what we do. And this has a lot of application to what Jesus' message is, the way that he is trying to teach us, the way that he is trying to show us that we can actually live in constant presence and awareness that he calls kingdom. And so, in the counseling um, experience, let's call it a counseling session, the first thing that I am doing is just listening. I'm listening as as actively and as a, you know presently as I possibly can. And they're telling me a story. You know, tell start anywhere. Start telling me the story. Tell me what's going on. What's happening? And some people, usually not too many, are very concise and very ordered in the way they tell the story. Most people, it's kind of like watching Pulp Fiction where everything is out of order, you know, the timeline. Or like everybody's doing now, they, they give you one thing, and then it's 12 hours earlier, you know, eight minutes earlier, three years ago. But it's like all over the place, and they're, they're kind of meandering through. And then I'll ask some leading questions, and, but I'm listening constantly for what is going on. What are the symptoms? What is the diagnosis, quote-unquote? Now, sometimes they'll, they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, uh, I'm feeling burned out, you know, they'll give their own diagnosis about what's going on. Most of the time, they're just telling me their symptoms, you know, I'm sad, I'm, I'm so tired, I feel like I can't get out of bed, I feel like I can't sleep, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, facing insomnia, um, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble eating, you know, whatever it happens to be, they're giving me the, the effect of what is going on in their lives. And I'm looking for that so that I can start to put together an idea of what's going on. You know, what are the symptoms, what it could possibly be. But beyond that, I'm also looking for the source. What's the source of the issues that they're facing and the symptoms that they're going through? And there's two $64 words here, exogenous, exogenous, and endogenous. And these two words have to do with, exogenous is a source that comes from the outside in. Endogenous is the opposite. It's coming from inside out. It's really important to try to ascertain what the direction of the cause is, the source is of the problems that they're facing. For, most, for many people, their, their depression, their stress, their anxiety is exogenous. That means it's situational. It's coming from real events that are happening in their lives, and it's understandable. And it's also going to be temporary, because once the situation is alleviated, then they'll be able to come out the other side. In other words, their reaction to that situation is appropriate some things should depress you some things should stress you out and make you anxious now we're going to talk about ways to be able to moderate that to, to move through that to continue to lean into your moments and get to the other side that's what a counselor does counselor is not a therapist counselor is not going to go down into the unconscious but a counselor is going to look at these issues and come up with strategies and techniques and way to get from point A to point B But at the same time that I'm listening, even if there is an outside stressor, a situational stressor that is going on, it's often triggering something that's endogenous, something that's coming from within. Now we're talking about mostly unconscious beliefs, core beliefs that have been established in the person as programs for happiness and programs for survival and advantage all the way back to earliest childhood. The person doesn't even know these programs are running. You don't know your programs are running. I don't know my programs are running. That's the nature of it being unconscious. It's nothing we can grab onto, but it is affecting our thought patterns, which affect our behavior patterns, which affect the experience that we have in life. And we don't even realize that's going on. Sometimes someone will tell me, I'm feeling all these things, but I have no idea why. You know, there's really nothing going on. We try to pick. How about this? How about this? Nothing going on. It's all endogenous. It's all coming. Something has triggered these deep-seated feelings, and it's coming out and manifesting in all these different ways. So being able to understand what's the interplay between those two. It's never really hard left or right, as always. It's not either or. It's both and. But where that's coming down is going to take a different path, if it's really exogenous, if it's really all those external stressors, then counseling is appropriate. If it's more to the other side, then therapy needs to kick in. Maybe medication needs to kick in, because maybe there's actual mental illness along with all of the other neuroses and things that are at play. So trying to get that balance is really important as a way going forward. You know, for example, grief and depression They all have similar symptoms. You know, someone can feel sad, someone can feel empty and guilty and and can feel um, that they have insomnia or lethargy or all those things that are common to both. But grief is mostly focused on the loss. So that's a situational feeling that they have. That's exogenous. So if a person in grief is um, having some suicidal ideation, let's say, it's because they want to join their loved one. But if a depressed person has suicidal ideation, it's because they feel completely worthless. A person who is grieving is still going to feel moments of relief. Their grief is going to come in waves, and then they're going to feel relief when they're around people or whatnot. In other words, you can still make a grieving person laugh. And often it's by recalling some funny eccentricity of the, of the lost one, and, and they can laugh with you. You can't make a depressed person laugh. Not very easily because their, their depression is so deeply within. It's endogenous. And so this is the way we're trying to look when we're, when we're counseling or, or therapist, trying to ascertain where is this coming from and what is the way forward? How can we move through this? Okay. I think Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. Jesus is working on trying to get us through these especially endogenous, unconscious belief patterns and systems, because they are affecting the way that we see life. A person with major depression is not seeing life and seeing themselves the way that everybody else does. They're seeing it completely skewed in a way that continues to get darker and darker, unless you can start moving them through the other side. Jesus is very sensitive to this. You could almost say that his entire ministry is trying to clean this up Clean these things up so that we can actually see what's right in front of us. Let's take a look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. Actually I want to start at verse 22, and then we'll back up to 19. It's in your uh, handouts, or you can look up at the screen. And this is the, the famous, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the famous illustration, the famous metaphor that Jesus uses, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. Okay, so for us that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because light and dark are dualities, right? They're mutually exclusive. If there's light, there's no more darkness. So how can the light be darkness and da-da-da? Let's go back into the Aramaic and let's look at a couple of key words here because now we can start to understand what Jesus is talking about. When he talks about the eye... Aina, in in Aramaic, doesn't just mean the physical eye. It also means your viewpoint, it means your opinion. It means the whole way that you see, your attitude toward, your worldview. It's everything. It's the way that you see life, all right? Which is obviously going to include those endogenous, those unconscious core beliefs, because they're the ones that are creating the filter. They're the ones that are coloring everything that we see. So if your eye, your eye, that way that you see is what is the lamp of your body, what you're going to get inside your entirety is going to be what passes through the filter of your eye. So if your eye is clear, the word there is Peshitta. Peshitta means clear, but in the sense of simple, true, sincere, absolutely straight, that's Peshitta. So if your eye is all those things, clear, straight, true, sincere, then your whole body will be full of light. Nura is light in Aramaic. But Nura doesn't just mean physical light the way we think about it. It also means order. It means something that's harmonious and connected and works well together. That's nura. So if your eye is clear and straight and true, if your viewpoint, the way of seeing life, is clear and straight and true, then your body will be full of order. It'll be harmonious. It'll be connecting. But if your eye is bad, bisha, and we talk about this a lot. Bisha means unripe, immature, not ready for prime time, all those kinds of things, out of harmony, Wrong place, wrong time. Then your whole body will be full of darkness. Heshuka, which is chaos, disorder. Do you see how this starts to stack up now? Because then if the light in you is disordered, chaotic, how great is that chaos? It all comes back to the Aina. The, the, the eye, the way that you see Jesus is trying to get us to clean the lens. He's trying to get us to clear out anything, those unconscious beliefs that would create this colored filter and change the way that we're seeing into something that is not clear, not straight, and not true. And then if you go back to verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the same idea here. And then if you look at verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and wealth. And that's a bad translation for mammon. Wealth, because it limits it. What mammon really means is anything that we pile up in our lives that comes to define us. In other words, it's part of that, that worldview. It's part of that endogenous way of seeing, that filter that is not clear. Jesus. These are two illustrations with the actual metaphor in the middle of the same thing. When our eye is not clear, it is not straight, then we are at odds with the world because we are living a reality that is not the shared reality that we all have. We are living a reality that God does not inhabit. God inhabits the real reality, always right here at the intersection of here and now, right? But we're not there. We're someplace else, literally serving, trying to serve two masters, God and this belief system that is within us. We have our treasures literally stored here on earth within what we rely on, what we've come to understand as our program for happiness and and advantage and survival. We don't have our treasures in heaven, which is simply to say that we cannot see where God really is, what God is really doing, what's really going on here. So all illustrations are the same thing. And you can say this is Jesus' ministry to give us aina Peshida and the stripping away, the clearing away of anything that is limiting, anything that is bisha in our endogenous beliefs. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. And of course, we've said a million times and here in order to do this, we need to descend. It's the process of clearing out all that limiting stuff All that stuff we don't even know is there. And so it's going to come off layer by layer. It's going to be like an archeological dig, you know, sedimentary layer by sedimentary layer over, you know, because we don't have direct control of these things. It's going to be a process of awareness and opposite action that takes us through brick by brick, taking down more and more of what is limiting us as we literally rewire our brains as we literally come closer and closer to this truth that God really inhabits, then we can come into the nura. Then we can come into the ascent, the illumination on the other side. Now, what happens if we don't do this? Well, then we're only going to be able to see what we're programmed to see. We programmed ourselves. Starting in childhood, we didn't realize we're doing it. We were just learning through all of the hurts and all the traumas and all the abandonments and all the neglect and everything else that went on first in our homes of origin and then our schools and everything else that we experienced. All that sum of that experience has programmed us to look at life a certain way in order, we think, to survive the defenses we have, the walls that we have, the way we go about things. So if we don't do the work that Jesus is talking about, then we're always going to be looking through that programming. We're never going to be able to really see what Jesus sees and is trying to get us to see as well. So Palm Sunday is like an object lesson in only seeing what you're programmed to see. All those endogenous beliefs, Palm Sunday is like a perfect storm at the time that Jesus actually entered Jerusalem, as is depicted in the Gospels. Jesus was just at the height of his fame at this moment, and he was also at the height of the animosity that he was engendering in all of the powers arrayed around him and against him at this point. Just the day before, in Gospel time, he had raised Lazarus from the grave, the pinnacle of of his fame, and the pinnacle of the people's hope in him as being their Mashiach, their savior, right? And he's also at the pinnacle of his conflicts with the Pharisees. He's going to conflict them more the next day, but when he cleanses the temple, right? But all those Sabbath controversies, all of those debates that he had, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are now fully convinced that he is not of their camp They've already conspired to do away with him because he is threatening their power base. And so here he is at the height of his fame, at the height of the animosity that he has engendered, and here comes Pesach, Passover, which is an eight-day pilgrimage festival. was an eight-day pilgrimage festival at the time when the temple still stood where Jews, male Jews at least, from all over were, if they were at all physically able, to come to Jerusalem and perform their rites and their duties uh, ritually. And so this is a time when all these thousands of pilgrims are hitting Jerusalem at the same time, and it's Rome's worst nightmare when you think about it. You know, Think about whenever there's big protests or something go on in a major city, how all the police and everyone goes on high alert. You can bet those Roman legions at the garrison at Antonia were on high alert for a whole week. They're dreading this thing because they know how it goes. And not only that, the zealots are ramping up the, the unrest and the sedition, the riots that they engendered, assassinations, you know. They were called in Greek the Sakarii, which, me, which is, relates to a dagger that they used for their assassinations. And the in uh, Aramaic, which is referred to their zealotry, you know, how sold out they were for these, these values and what they were trying to do to destabilize the Roman occupation. So all of this is coming down together at the same time, powder keg for insurrection. And at this moment, Jesus enters the gates of Jerusalem, and the city goes nuts. I know Marian just read it, but let's read it again at Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that would be Zechariah, saying, say to the deserters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So here we have Palm Sunday which is placed right between, liturgically, Lazarus Saturday, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and Fig Monday, which is tomorrow, which gives us the stories both of the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. And both are to be understood together because Jesus was seeing the temple as a symbol of Jerusalem and the fig tree, which was always a symbol of of Israel, as being barren no longer able to sustain life, either spiritual or physical. And so the two understood together, give us the reason why Jesus would curse a fig tree. He's not really cursing it. He's just exposing its nature, that it's barren, that it can't support life. And the same thing with the temple, which was a symbol of Israel and the symbol of the whole Judaic system, was now just a den of robbers. It was no longer able to sustain Life. And so you have Palm Sunday placed between these two, between, again, the heights of the fame and the adoration and the height of threat and animosity. And the question becomes, who is this real, who is the real Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And the people are split. There's only one Jesus, right? But there's four different camps of people that are mentioned in this scriptural passage. Four different camps of people and two basic opinions. One saw Jesus as a savior, and the other saw him as a threat. So which is it? Is Jesus a savior, or is Jesus a threat? And what we see here is that the people, as they're looking at Jesus, even with all the clues that he's giving them, even as he's fulfilling scriptures that they know very well, the people can only see Jesus through their own endogenous programming. They can only see him through the filter that they have created. They can't see the truth that Jesus is really expressing here. They only can see their own wants, their own needs, their own fears. And Jesus is giving plenty of c- clues here. First of all, as Marion said, he's coming on the colt of a donkey. So that's not even a donkey. That's the colt of a donkey. So even a step lower, right? But the idea, as she said, historically, if the king came into your city on a donkey, he was coming in peace. If he came on a horse, he was coming in war. Jesus is saying, all right, off the bat, he's coming in peace. He is not the Messiah that is going to be your warrior king that is going to lead you to overthrow the Roman occupation. That's not the point here. And he's coming on the foal or the colt of a donkey, which means he's coming in full humility. He's coming in a lowly state. He's not coming to lord it over. He's coming to serve. Remember? In, in just a few days, he's going to be washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, again trying to hammer home because they didn't get it. They were still jockeying for position to sit at his left and right hand in the coming kingdom. But he's trying to let everybody know this is what's going on. But even then, the people still treat him like a conquering king coming back in. The palms that they were waving, the palms that they were putting down on the street is a symbol of triumph and victory and abundance in the ancient world. The date palm especially was some symbol of abundance to the Jewish people. But for all the ancient peoples, palms were the symbol of victory, symbol of triumph. And to put their cloaks on the ground before him is like a red carpet treatment. It's the same thing, same idea. They were paving his way with their cloaks and with these palm branches. And then they were shouting to him, Hosanna. And now we think of that as being praise, but that's not what it means. The actual Hebrew there is hoshiana. And the whole phrase is hoshiana anayave from Psalm 118, which means save us, we beseech you, Lord God. But hosanna, hoshiana, save us, we beg you. Save us, we beseech you is what was being shouted from the streets. And so the question is, save us from what? What is it that they wanted to be saved from? Now, the bulk of the people and the zealots themselves, who were the guerrillas of their time, who were trying to foment the destabilization of the occupation, they were looking at Jesus as their Mashiach. I mean certainly with everything that he had done culminating in the raising of Lazarus he was the one who had the power he was the one who could gather the people around him create the army that was needed to fight the revolution against the the romans and so they were looking to be saved from the roman oppression which was very difficult to live under the romans could be vicious historically Some historians will say that they were kind of a soulless empire. They didn't really have a philosophical belief system the way the Greeks did and and some of the others. As long as the tax revenue was coming, they were perfectly happy. And so that's what they were. They were interested in order. They were interested in the taxes being able to be brought forth. But they were vicious in the way that they put down any type of, of insurrection. And their taxes were so onerous, it just made the the poor people and and uh, you know whatever passed for middle class there so difficult for them to be able to live. Not only the the humiliation as a as a nation of being under the boot of the Roman Empire. So they're looking for Jesus to save them from the Roman impression. Jesus' own followers, the subset of the people, are also looking at him as Mashiach. They're also looking at him as the the Savior. And they're also looking at him as the King, the same way the people did. But they have a different relationship because they're on the inside. And so what they are really looking for Jesus to do, if you think about it, is to save them from anonymity. To save them from, I suppose, powerlessness and poverty. As I said, up until the crucifixion itself, they are jockeying for position. James and John send their mother to Jesus to lobby for them. You know, can my two kids sit on your right hand and left hand as you come into power? They still don't get it. So right up to the the Lord's um, supper, the Last Supper, He is trying to get this across to them. This is not the way, the way you're thinking about it is not the way it really is. But this is what they're looking for, a Savior who will save them from their anonymity, their powerlessness, and bring them into a place where they have a stake. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the third group, are seeing Jesus as a threat, of course, a threat to their power base. The power base of the Pharisees was the oral law, their position as as lawyers of the law. The people had to go through them to be able to do anything that allowed them to be in community, to buy and sell and trade and all that. And of course, the Sadducees, their power base was the temple system. Jesus had attacked both throughout his ministry. He attacked the oral tradition. All those Sabbath controversies were spot on, trying to tear that down because it was such a burden to the people. And he had also attacked the temple system. And the next day, he's going to cleanse the temple, which is going to be the nth degree of that, right? And so he's a threat to their power base, the the Jewish authorities. And also a threat to their standing of power as a Roman client state. So the Romans would come in and allow the people to run themselves as long as they did a good job, but of course everything was subs- you know, submitted to Roman power. They had power positions because they played well with the Romans, and Jesus was threatening that as well. And of course, the Romans are the fourth group, and the Romans also thought, saw Jesus as a threat to their power base because they were just looking for political order. They were looking for stability and their tax revenue. And if Jesus was the one who was starting to gather a following that was troubling, and possibly seditious and going to foment riots, well, then they needed to put that down. And the typical Roman way was to put it down with a vengeance. Just quell that riot, quell the sedition, just turn it off. So it's the same Jesus being looked at by all these people. Who is this Jesus? What is this Jesus? Is he a savior or is he a threat? Now, reflexively, all of us are going to say that he's a savior. I would think. But what kind of savior is Jesus? And how does Jesus save? Jesus is always going to be a paradox. He presented his teaching paradoxically because he knows that in order for us to truly approach the spiritual, we have to stop thinking logically. And whenever we see a conflict, whenever we see a contradiction, whenever we see a paradox, that intolerance of uncertainty in us that wants everything to be resolved and tied with a bow is going to flop down to one side or another, make a choice about one side or another. That side becomes right and the other side becomes wrong. But in spiritual matters, it's not so. It's not about a duality like that. It's about a unity. It's about pulling those extremes to the center and realizing that both things are true at the same time. And it is that tension that we are willing to remain in and push through that gives us the insight, the spiritual insight on the other side. This is the way Jesus teaches, but this is also who Jesus is. He is a non-dual paradox in and of himself. He is both savior and threat at the same time. But not as any of us would probably imagine that threat or that salvation, either then or now. So we got to clear the aina, clear the eye of the filter, whatever we're looking through, whatever causes us to make these choices, left or right, whatever, if we're going to ever see the truth that Jesus is trying to bring. And that's all he's trying to do. He's trying to show us the truth. He's trying to bring the truth to us, but we're only going to see the programming. We're only going to see what we think we want and think we need. But here is (laughs) the uncomfortable truth. Jesus is not here. Jesus did not come to give us what we want. That's not his function. We're always asking him for that, but that's not his function. Jesus is inviting us to see what is real what is really real, and therefore to be able to see what we really need, not what we think we need or want, but what we really need. And if we believe that Jesus is a threat, if we've chosen to see him as a threat, we don't even know we've chosen to see him as a threat, he just is because of that unconscious programming, right? And not as a savior, then we're going to miss that Jesus really does save us. But if we've chosen to see Jesus as Savior and not a threat, then we're going to miss how Jesus saves us because we're violating the paradox by trying to resolve it one side or another. It's our fears that devi- define those endogenous programming, that endogenous programming. Fears define that. Fears make us see everything through the filter of our wants and our needs, through our Aina Bisha. So if you're afraid of change, what does that tell you? You're afraid of change? Don't like change? It means that you are invested in the status quo. Right? You have taken comfort in what is familiar, in comfort in what you have built, comfort with what is around you. And Jesus is therefore a threat to your power base because he's coming in telling you to sell all that. He's telling you to be willing to tear all that down. That's a threat, because everything that you think you know and rely on is what you think you need to survive. It's what you want. It's what you need. What we typically pray to Jesus for is to reinforce that, right? Not to tear it down, but that's the first thing Jesus does. Are you willing to let it go? And if you're afraid of not change... If you're afraid of having no change, what does that tell you? It tells you that you are seeing yourself, at least, or you really are, marginalized, disenfranchised in this society. You're oppressed. You're a victim. And you want things to change. And therefore, you're going to see Jesus as Savior. But you're going to see Jesus as Savior in the sense of a fixer of your problems. Jesus is the one who's going to bring the change that you think you want. So if we continue to look at this paradox of life, this paradox in Jesus, through the filter of our fears, we're going to miss what Jesus is really trying to do in our lives. We're going to miss the truth that Jesus said can make us free. And Jesus says, this is the real tragedy. He weeps over this tragedy. It's only two times in the scripture that Jesus weeps. This is one of them. The other one was with Mary when she was grieving over her brother, Lazarus. But if we take a look at Luke 19, starting at verse 41, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Nobody recognized the hour of their visitation. You can hear the echoes in that passage right there. It's been hidden from their eyes. It sounds like someone else is doing the hiding, but it's, no, it's the eyes themselves. The eyes are not capable of seeing their visitation. They weren't prepared to see what Jesus was really all about. And so here is this paradox. And the truth of the paradox is that Jesus cannot be our Savior until he's first a threat. I want to let that sink in for a minute. Jesus cannot be our Savior until he's first a threat, a threat to our power base, a threat to everything that we use to our advantage, everything that we hold dear, everything that we rely on, everything that we take pride in. If we don't understand that Jesus is trying to get us to become willing to let that go, to strip that down, until all that is cleared out, we cannot move on Jesus' way. We cannot begin the long, hard work, the 40 remember? Always a 40 in the wilderness, a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. We can't begin that work. We can't spend the time in the four S's, silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity. Until all that is cleared out, we will never understand how Jesus saves us and what he's saving us from. Jesus is not saving us from the Romans, whatever the Romans represent to you. He's not saving us from the exogenous oppression, the exterior circumstances, whether they're political, whether they're social, or whether they're relational. Remember, Jesus says, you're always gonna have the poor with you, but you're not always gonna have me. He's telling us those circumstances out there that you so much want to change are always gonna be there in one shape or form. Why are you focusing on those? He's not saving us from those. He's not saving us from our problems the circumstances and consequences that we engender because of our choices, that's for us to solve, not for Jesus to solve for us. But what Jesus is saving us from is our fears. Because the fears are what keep our view in place, keep our attitude toward our problems in place, and keep those problems virtually unsolvable because nothing is changing in the way that we perceive. Nothing is changing in the way that we actually experience our lives. Because once we can become free, free of the fear, once our eye becomes clear, then we're free to let our faith actually move mountains. Whatever those mountains represent in our lives, mentally, emotionally, physically, those are the real mountains that need to be moved. We're always trying to focus on physical mountains. But remember, Jesus is working us from the inside out. Kingdom always moves from the inside out. Mental, emotional, physically, what's going on in our lives? Where are those mountains? That's one thing I love about the sign of the cross from my Catholic youth, mental, emotional, physical. It is bringing everything that it means to be a human being. All our thoughts, all our feelings, all our actions, Underneath the cross, underneath what Jesus is all about. When our fear is released, when we can finally move forward in faith, that's when the mountains can be moved. We can't move the fear that drives us until we can threaten and move everything that we have built because of the fear. Do you see that? All of that stuff that is creating the filter that disallows us from seeing was built out of fear. Until the fear is gone, we can't move that stuff. You can't use fear to move fear. It, it doesn't compute. We want to keep using the tools that were created by fear, the beliefs that were created by fear to fix the problems that were created by fear. Jesus is threatening all of that. Why? Because it doesn't work. Remember what Einstein said? He said, you can't solve problems using the same kind of thinking we used when we created the problems. Same idea here. We're trying to use the creation of our fears to move what we've created in our fears. And Jesus is trying to tear all that down. Jesus is our savior and our threat. And until we accept his threat, he can't save us. Now, this isn't theoretical. This isn't philosophical. This isn't abstract. We're talking about a real descent in our lives, a real clearing out. And it must be physical. It must be part of our lives as we live it, The threat has to be perceived as real. It has to have a risk factor to it, or there's no faith. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt, of uncertainty, of risk, as if that thing is true. That's what faith is. So there has to be a real perceived risk. We can't do it from our armchairs. We can't do it comfortably on our couch. This is going to be lived out in the streets of our lives, in that laboratory. A few years ago, I got a kidney stone. <laughs> it's a bad thing to get a kidney stone. You know, I always, I, I'm, I'm hoping someday I'll meet a woman who has both had a kidney stone and, and had a baby because I'm still trying to figure out which pain is worse. But I know women who've had kidney stones and not babies, and babies but not kidney stones, and of course the guys don't count because yeah, you've had both, which is worse? Um, no, it <laughs> Well see you see what I'm going for here. I'm hoping that there is some pain that men have that can rival the pain that you women have so we don't have to feel so out of it. But I'm telling you, this was bad. I mean the the, the pain was was so just growing, you know. It started Sunday afternoon after church. And um, I was just for hours, it was growing and growing, and I was just trying to stare it down, you know. Hang. And I just got to the point where I just, I didn't know what was happening. Was it an appendicitis? You know, was I bleeding out inside? What the heck was going on? So I had saviors around me. My first savior was my son, Sean. Who I totally freaked out when I pounded on his door and said, can you drive me to the emergency? You know, because I'd never asked him to do anything like that before. You know, dad is always the one who's got it all together. Dad is the one who's self-sufficient. I had to go ask my son for help. You know, poor kid. (laughs) He was shaking all the way there and, you know, I'm moaning on my side of the car. And then there was Marion. She was my next savior. She's working at Home Depot and she just... Gets the call from Sean and just I'm out of here. Came right to the ER and sat with me as we're waiting for hours, right, to get your you got to get your room. And then of course that medical staff that comes in, you know, they were my saviors and everything that they did. But none of them could do anything for me until I submitted to them. I had to go ask my son for help. I had to lean on my wife. I had to <laughs> admit that I couldn't stand the pain anymore. I couldn't do it on my own. I had to admit that I needed a wheelchair. They had to wheel me around in a wheelchair. I had to submit to that stupid gown that's open in the back. I had to submit to all the inane medical questions they asked so that you can make sure that you've got your your uh, insurance in place. And all the pokes and the prods and the needles and the medications that went along with it, I had to submit to the indignity, to the loss of my sense of independence. Yeah? I mean, we have a sense of ourselves, don't we? This is who I am. And then suddenly you can't be that person anymore you got to rely on all these people. Man, that's a tough thing to do for us. That's frightening. The loss of my own capability to handle my issues on my own. I had to let go of the illusions that I had about myself and who I saw myself to be if I was going to be saved by all these people around me. And I did. I had saviors all around me. But they threatened my power base. And I resisted as long as I could, I'm telling you. I went as long as I could before I knocked on my son's door. But once I submitted to that threat, once I let my illusions of my own power, my own ability to carry on, my own self go, then they could save me. And this is how Jesus saves. This is it. This is the whole point he's trying to make, right? He's trying to save us through our ability to see life with clear eyes, eyes that can truly see the reality of God in this world, in our lives, what he is doing and done for us by living in a different way, physically and spiritually, and bringing those two paradoxes together without choosing one over the other, balancing them in our lives. And so I can tell you right now, Jesus is my Savior and my threat, but not necessarily in that order. Let's pray. Father, we're here at the beginning of another Holy Week, on another Palm Sunday. The years roll around and around and around and Help us every time we come back to one of these cyclical milestones that we can feel that there is an expansion, an expansion of our awareness, expansion of our connection with you and with each other. Help us to see that there is that spiral ascension, that something is changing year by year that we are growing and growing closer to you. And on the other side of that, help us to see that we are becoming more and more willing to let go of the things that block us from that closeness. That we're willing to allow ourselves to be served, to be saved by submitting to the power that's greater than ourselves. Help us to see that this is the way of it this is your way, and that this Holy Week represents another opportunity for us to move into that space and to find out how new life actually occurs in our lives this Easter. Thank you, Father, for that love and that constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.